You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Robert Wintmute, a professor of human rights law at King's College in London and a lawyer for the LGB Alliance, was scheduled to give a talk called Sex versus Gender Identity Debate in the United Kingdom and the Divorce of LGB from T at McGill University in Montreal last week. The event never happened, though. It was canceled shortly after it began as protesters stormed the venue, shouting profanities and slogans like trans rights are human rights. They threw flour at Robert and unplugged a projector he used for the event. Robert rightly called the protest extremely anti-democratic. I spoke with him from his home in London this week about the protest, as well as how we came to a place wherein trans rights have superseded women's sex-based human rights in law. Robert, hi. Thank you so much for joining me on Feminist Current today. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm wondering, um, tell me a little bit about your work and how you first became interested in this debate around gender identity ideology. Yes, well, um, I go back a long way. I uh, was the first openly gay lawyer at the Milbank Law Firm in New York back in 1985, which is roughly when I started working on LGB human rights. Um, And that was my main focus for many years. In the late 90s, early 2000s, a, a political, coli- political coalition started to form between LGB and T. I was skeptical. I didn't really see what the two had in common, but it was the trend. So I went along with it for many years, didn't ask too many questions. And then uh, my light bulb moment came in 2018. I was teaching at a summer school in the Netherlands and a woman asked me a question about uh, British law, uh, the Gender Recognition Act, which says that you can change your legal sex and remain married as long as your spouse consents. And this is what's called the spousal veto by the transgender rights movement. So I was just trying to explain why it exists, because certainly at at the time the exception was introduced, uh, most almost all marriages were opposite sex. And uh, so uh, changing the legal sex of one spouse would turn it into a same-sex marriage. And the spouse hadn't signed up for that, hadn't consented to it, and might have strong religious objection. So um, in the European Convention on Human Rights, a reason for limiting one person's human right is to protect the rights of others. So I said, in this case, we're protecting the rights of the spouse. And there was a transgender student in the group who just was not, just thought this was outrageous that I was um, defending this exception. I was really just trying to explain it. But uh, eventually I said, Well, trans rights don't trump everything else. 
and the transgender student became very angry and stormed out of the room. So that was my sort of light bulb moment when I realized that many people in the transgender rights movement don't understand that other people have human rights too. So, and then after that, um, I suppose what happened was I was gradually kind of seeing the world go crazy, um, at least from my perspective. Um, Particularly in the LGB community, there was a there's a publication called Pink News, and it mm-hmm. gradually evolved from an LGB publication to a transgender one. Some days, all of the news was transgender, and then in October 2019, the new organization LGB Alliance was founded, and in January uh, 2020, in desperation. I contacted them and started working with them. Um, yeah, and then so gradually, I guess I just I start, I learned more about the transgender rights movement. I suppose an important point here is um, the Jakarta principles, which I had been involved in drafting back in uh, November two thousand six, hmm. and I was assigned I signed the two thousand seven version. And it wasn't until 2020 that I actually read the 2017 version and principle 31 calling, uh, well, not calling for, saying that every country must immediately, as a a requirement of international human rights law, remove sex from birth certificates. That happened in 2017. Yeah, it's in the principle 31 of the 2017 version of the George Carter principles. And I just couldn't believe my eyes when I read this. And it finally <clears throat> made me understand the, um, the well, the self-centeredness of the, um, the transgender rights movement. And I just looked back to the starting point <clears throat> and I concluded that there had been an escalation of demands and um, an abuse of sympathy. So the original demand was for change of legal sex after surgery. And that uh, that was accepted um, out of sympathy for the person, especially male to female transgender, who had done everything possible uh, to try to make their body as female as possible. And it was thought, well, this is the least we can do is change their legal sex. So in 2002, the European Court of Human Rights said that the United Kingdom had to do this. Uh, We had been resisting. Um, And immediately the new demand, number two, was change of legal sex with no medical treatment, um, but with a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and a waiting period of two years. And that was written into the Gender Recognition Act 2004. And then in in 2012, uh, we got a new law in Argentina with self-identification. So no diagnosis, no waiting period. And that's being became the model that's being pushed in various countries around the world. Um, And so that number number demand number three for self-identification, I think, is uh, goes too far. it removes all the safeguards that would prevent a non-transgender man from abusing the procedure. 
And then you get demand number four. So the first three demands are all about making it easy to change legal sex. And then demand number four is to get rid of legal sex, to remove it altogether from birth certificates so there's nothing to change on the birth certificate. Mm. And yeah, that's where I, that that really drove home to me the the fact that this movement um, is uh, focused only on its own interests and does not consider anyone else. Yeah, I think that a lot of people have wondered how this all happened and how it sort of all happened at once. Like we've seen similar um, bills and legislative proposals happen around the world kind of, you know, all around the same time. Do you have any idea how this this was managed? Um, without having done a detailed historical study, I would say my impression is that it was done um, <clears throat> uh, quietly, mainly behind the scenes, winning over <clears throat> politicians, etc. And uh, <clears throat> it only became um, more obvious what was going on after same-sex marriage was achieved. So Canada, that was quite early in 2005, but for England and Wales, it was 2013, and the USA, 2015. So at that point, you have all these LGBT organizations worried that they don't have any more work to do, that they, their, their funding might dry up. So they start focusing on transgender issues and pushing them strongly. And then I think you, you have a lot of people waking up to what's what has happened and starting to ask questions and complain and object and um so that's why we're we're seeing seeing all the tensions now um and in my case uh, seeing where we are now i go back to the beginning and, and do wonder how on earth did we get here and you mentioned earlier that they took sex out of the yoga karta principles altogether um how did that process happen? I mean, who made that decision? Mm -hmm. Well, I was involved in the 2007 version, and I wasn't invited um, to the tooth for to draft the 2017 version. If I'd heard the proposal, I would have strongly objected. <clears throat> so I think they invited like minded people. Um, and uh, but it's very, uh, I mean, it's completely dishonest the way it's presented. So they say <clears throat> every government in the world shall remove sex from birth certificates. They say this is an uh, existing obligation under international human rights law. And there's actually no support for that at all. In fact, I'm not aware of a single country that has done this. And so, but it just exposes their ultimate goal and um so yeah it's it's uh uh i suppose it, it's a call to action to resist uh their the unreasonable demands of the transgender rights movement before they get to that stage 
Mm-hmm. They've been very effective. I mean, I, I grew up in Alberta, widely reported case of um, a man in Alberta who changed his legal sex to female to get cheaper car insurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I checked the the regulations and I was very surprised to see that uh, <clears throat> self-identification, which exists, started in Argentina and is now being uh, uh, a form of which is being debated in uh, or has been passed by the Scottish Parliament and blocked by the uh, UK government, uh, exists in Alberta. I mean, you just have to fill out a form and tick a box and you go from male to female. So it'll uh, be interesting to to find out how that uh, has happened in various Canadian provinces. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Canada's been one of the most progressive, <laughs> actually progressive um, countries in terms of pushing forward gender identity legislation. Um, they really did it. The, the Liberal government, Trudeau's Liberal government, passed Bill C-16 back in 2017 with no real public debate or, or consultation. And there still is no genuine debate on the issue. Mm. Yes, I um, uh, I was in Montreal in 2017, just after the Bill C-17 was passed. <clears throat> I wouldn't say that bill itself is... Um, cause for concern because it involves a prohibition of hate speech, which hopefully will be interpreted quite narrowly, and um, prohibition of discrimination. And in most most situations, an individual's birth sex or gender identity is not relevant. So that's all justifiable. I actually think the greater power is at the provincial level to decide um, uh, procedures for changing legal sex, and that's I think received less pu- publicity. Um, so uh, yeah, but in these debates, what I noticed with the Scottish Parliament, I watched one of the, the meetings of the of the committee considering the bill. Every time an issue c- would come up, they'd say, "Don't worry about that." The exceptions in the Equality Act, twenty ten which is the equivalent of the Canadian human rights legislation at the federal and provincial levels. The the exceptions will take care of it, such as like women-only spaces, um, et cetera. And so what I realized that uh, if this bill goes through, the the transgender person will um, get a, a gender recognition certificate saying they're legally female, but it will be mainly mainly symbolic because in most situations, it doesn't matter what your sex is. And in situations where it does matter, these exceptional cases under the Equality Act, your your birth sex is what counts, not your uh, your legal sex. So the, the, the gender recognition certificate makes no difference. So... I see women as having two lines of defense. One is to try and have <clears throat> some conditions on changing legal sex, so it's not not so easy that um, 
a, a non-transgender man can't decide to abuse the procedure. And the second line of defense is the exceptions. Now, these might not be so well defined in, in Canadian legislation. I haven't studied them. But for example, we have a section 195 in the Equality Act 2010 on sports. And it says very clearly that if a sport is a gender-affected activity where one's sex can confer an advantage, then uh, A, people can men can be excluded from women's sports on the basis of sex, but also B, a transgender person can be excluded because of their gender reassignment. So um, although uh, the transgender rights movement has having a lot of success with these self-identification laws, uh, one was passed in New Zealand uh, uh, end of 2021, there's... Uh, a bill advancing in Spain. Um, the second line of defense is to st insist strongly on the uh, the exceptions. You obviously have a lot of expertise in the area of human rights. You're a professor of human rights law. Mm -hmm. um, you've been involved in these these creating this kind of policy and legislation. Um, I mean, one of the the mantras of the trans rights movement of trans activists is trans rights are human rights. Do you think that there's any credence to that? You know, like what are the human rights that they're referencing when they say that? Mm -hmm. That's um, an interesting slogan. And actually it was used in the 1990s as lesbian and gay rights are human rights. <clears throat> And I suppose I liked it back then. It was really uh, just saying that um, lesbian and gay concerns should be viewed in a human rights context. Um, but it it was, I, I never at the time, I, I didn't focus on the fact that how, of how empty it was. There were, was no content, no specifics. Now, when I hear trans rights are human rights, I would say, well, yes, but which rights are you talking about? And so there's a huge variety of rights, and some of them are uh, not contested at all, and, and some are. Actually, the middle part of my McGill talk was going to be about um, areas of agreement. So everyone agrees that uh, transgender people should be protected uh, against any form of violence or harassment. Um, they should be protected against employment discrimination when birth sex is irrelevant, which is the case for most jobs. So there, yes, there's no, no dispute. But asserting the right to change your legal sex with no conditions attached, that's not a human right. Um, Certainly, the majority of countries in Europe don't don't allow that at the moment. And yeah, the asserting as a human right uh, to a person who's gone through male puberty to compete in women's sports, that's not a human right. So um, yeah, so trans trans rights, the slogan trans rights or human rights is uh, has no content. it's 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 completely vague. So you have to look at each specific, claim and, and uh, look at it critically and especially ask 
is anyone are uh, are the rights of any other person affected? So, so that's actually um, uh, one or one example I would make um, or point to of uh, the the differences between the LGB and the transgender movement. So, LGB was really seeking equal rights. We weren't just we wanted the same rights as. Um, heterosexual individuals, opposite sex couples, etc. We were not trying to take any rights away from anyone. So whereas the transgender rights movement uh, has an ultimate goal of taking away a woman's right to have her sex indicated on her birth certificate, which I think is very radical, the equivalent would be for the LGB rights movement to say we want to see a marriage abolished. We can't get married, so no one should get, be able to get married. And that, yeah. that was never a serious proposal. How do you think that it happened that the LGB movement was so overtaken by the T? I mean, you mentioned Pink News earlier, which has become a really notorious trans activist website, um, mm -hmm. online news source, magazine, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it's the same thing has happened in all these LGB, now T organizations, NGOs, charities, etc. You know, they're heavily focused on the, the so-called trans rights issue. Mm -hmm. Even pride, right? Like the pride parade is so heavily centered on, on trans. Yes. So I find... Um... Transgender, transgender rights movement gets uh, two bites at the cherry, so to speak. Uh, so they have their own organizations and they dominate the LGBT organizations. In Europe, there's Transgender Europe and there's ILGA Europe, which prioritizes transgender concerns. You have Trans Pride and you have Pride, which uh, highlights transgender concerns. You have a Trans Pride flag and then you have the what used to be the rainbow flag and now has multiple new um, emblems being added, um, including a, um, a, pr a prominent trans pride component, which is now being pushed aside partly by the intersex symbol that was added this year. So, um, yeah, so anyway, just, just to show the success of this um, hijacking of, of LGBT organizations and events. And I can just think back to when it started. And I mentioned this date of 2015. So that's same-sex marriage in the USA and also the Stonewall uh, uh, group in uh, organization in, in the United Kingdom, which is similar to EGAL in Canada. That's when they took on transgender issues for the first time. They had done LGB issues only uh, previously. And so that's 2015. And then 2016, I went to the ILGA Europe conference in Cyprus. And the first for the first time, I got a name badge that had a blank for my pronouns. Yeah. And then I'd say it's just accelerated since then. So you were scheduled to do a talk at McGill University in Montreal. The name of the talk, Sex Versus 
gender identity debate in the United Kingdom and the divorce of the LGB from T. I was actually surprised that McGill would even host this event, to be honest, because Canadian universities are very much activist universities now, and it's it's very difficult to to get them to host these kinds of conversations. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> Before we get into what actually happened. <laughs> yes, well, um, I approached the Center for Human Rights and Legal Pluralism at the McGill University Faculty of Law because I'd given a talk for them in um, uh, 2017 with the title um, Israel-Palestine, Is It Apartheid? And Is Boycott Justified and Legal? So another controversial topic. Um, I gave the talk. It was well attended, um, very civilized discussion. It went very well. So I just said I propose this other this new topic and I said, well, it went well last time, and I've given the talk at King's College London. It went well. Between proposing it to McGill and actually trying to give it, I gave it in Barcelona and in Bologna. So London, Barcelona, Bologna, three times, same title, same content, zero protesters at each university. So I think <clears throat> the reaction was completely unforeseen by the organizers and, and by me. I mean, I thought I would be presenting some uh, unusual phenomenon from the United Kingdom, which the Canadians would see as uh, interesting, but of course, something that would never happen in Canada, a debate about this, about the about transgender issues. But I just didn't uh, anticipate the um, extreme reaction which was a Facebook call for a protest and um, an open letter to the uh, um, to McGill University. I assume I didn't actually read the whole thing. I assume they wanted McGill to cancel the talk, but um, uh, I didn't get past the first sentence, which said. Um, that if the talk went ahead, McGill University would be actively contributing to the genocide of trans people across the world. Goodness. Yeah. Hyperbolic. Sorry, hyperbolic, yeah. Um, so it was kind of hard to take it seriously. I mean, do, you know, do people, do students really believe this? Uh, and so then... Um, on the day I turned up and there was this large crowd outside the seminar room. Um, and uh, when I arrived, they didn't know who I was. So I just, I had to go through them to go upstairs to meet my host. So I uh, walked through them saying, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Then when I came back down with my host, who was a law professor at McGill, then they knew who the speaker was and they started shouting shame on you shame on you then we got inside the room the seminar room 
and we tried to start the seminar. They were trying to make as much noise as possible to drown me out. They were chanting, um, fuck your system, fuck your hate, trans rights aren't up for debate. And so I tried to speak as loudly as I could so people could hear me. Um, and eventually they started pushing on the door and finally they burst in. And one of them unplugged the video projector so the, the document that had been displayed could no longer be seen. They stood there chanting slogans. The Some McGill people tried to escort me to the other side of the room. One, a student came up and threw flour on me. And then I went to the dean's office uh, to seek refuge. And not long after that, uh, two television or camera crews arrived from C CBC and CTV Montreal. And I gave, the, an inter gave them an interview. And um, what it drove home forcefully was uh, the, and I'd say the stupidity of trying to suppress uh, free expression because if you try to suppress some of some of the ideas, you try to silence them, it makes makes people much more interested in what I had to say. Mm -hmm. So if I, my message had reached 50 people, I would have considered that a successful academic seminar. Instead, because of the protesters, I was, I was on the radio uh, an hour before. And then uh, after uh, I spoke to these two television networks, I returned to the UK. I went on GB News for a 10-minute interview. Somebody told me that they'd um, seen that 70,000 people had viewed it on YouTube. Mm. And I just spoke to Voice for Wales online um, program. They said 1,400 people were watching. So, yeah, uh, it was, um, uh, it backfired spectacularly in terms of uh, silencing me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true that the, the other side of the debate, the side that is, is talking about protecting women's sex-based rights, um, probably wouldn't get any coverage at all if not for these kinds of protests and these mm -hmm. kinds of attacks on the people who are trying to speak about such things. Um, so it seems that the protesters don't have much foresight. They also don't, I, I just find they don't end up looking very good in the media. Like they look, I mean, I've, I've had protesters at pretty much every event I've ever done. Um, mm -hmm. And they're quite, Terrifying. <laughs> I don't know mm -hmm. if you were scared. Did you find them scary? Um, it was a bit daunting, and uh, you know, and having to try to speak loudly um, was well, it was a new experience. I was a virgin in terms of protesters. This had never happened before. Mm. There was one moment when a, a student held an object near the glass of the door, and I thought. Um, Oh no, he's going to smash the glass. And fortunately, uh, he didn't. But 
when the students did burst in, it felt like a mini Washington 2021 or Brasilia 2023. Um, so yeah, it was really a very shocking and shameful episode in a, a university seminar room. Definitely. And how did the university respond? Mm, mainly with silence. Um, I tried to click on the link to the announcement of the seminar the other day, and it has disappeared from the website. So uh, I think they're embarrassed, but um, they uh, they just want as little publicity as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, I, when I was asked about this the other night, I just said, well, McGill, like many British universities, is now a corporate university. Their ma main concern is reputational damage. So if something bad happens in the university, that doesn't really matter. It can be ignored. But the most important thing is that the outside world should not hear about it. So as far as they're concerned, the less said, the better. That's interesting. It's, it seems like universities, especially universities in North America, I'm not as familiar with the universities in the UK and in Europe, um, are, you know, they've given students a lot of power um, over discourse, uh, mm -hmm. what can be talked about, what can be debated, even in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that? How do you think that that happened? I don't know. It's it hasn't happened. That hasn't happened in Britain. I haven't um, seen any student veto over what's discussed in the classroom. We do hear that uh, some rumblings about decolonizing the curriculum, but nothing has really been been done about that. But it, when I was hearing about the negotiations between the McGill organizers and the students it sounded like they did have a lot of power over what is what is said um, at McGill uh, events, and that might also affect the, the teaching in the classroom. So you've given this talk in other places in Europe um, and Canada. McGill University is the only place where you encountered these kinds of protests. Why do you think that was? Mm, to be honest, I've been telling friends that Canada now seems to me to be the woke capital of the world. Mm -hmm. So because the transgender rights movement is an integral part of the woke movement, um, I think you can expect the most extreme reaction to questioning some demands of the transgender rights movement uh, to take place in Canada. And do you have any plans to give this talk anywhere else in the future? Oh, uh, and as, at as many universities as I can manage. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hopefully, without uh, without similar protests, uh, no immediate plans to do it in Canada again. Yeah, I mean, you should give it a try. <laughs> well, I have I have received 
two inquiries about one doing an online version okay which i would be happy to do although um the last time i did something similar it was talking about human rights issues in pakistan from a safe distance online so it's very sad if i have to do that for canada as well um <clears throat> but another was another inquiry about possibly rescheduling it so if you know at another university with proper security it could could be possible yeah i mean i think it's good despite the fact that it's obviously unpleasant it's definitely good to to push these things and and as you said i mean the the primary result of these protests was media attention and people being more interested in what you have to say mm -hmm. and that what the the I, i consistently tried to summarize my message because i the newspapers le devoir and the montreal gazette were calling me a controversial speaker <clears throat> before i had spoken and didn't contact me to ask me what i was going to say so i said well yes i did come to miguel with a controversial message women have human rights too but most women are too afraid to speak up because of the intimidation of the transgender rights movement so right. that that was that was my message yeah and and you're exactly right um i mean it is it is scary as a woman to speak out about this stuff and mm -hmm. when we do we are subject to harassment and threats and so i appreciate your speaking out and your continued efforts to speak to speak out and um i appreciate your time today thank you so much for talking with me thank you very much for the opportunity to join your podcast already have a good night take care you, you too okay bye-bye bye -bye. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. We have been ad-free, sponsorship-free, wealthy investor-free, and fully independent since 2012. If you enjoyed this podcast and if you value independent women's media by women for women, no compromises, please consider making a donation to support our work just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.